0: You are listening to Nitty Gritty Nursing with Nurse M, where she breaks down the nitty gritty basics of nursing concepts. Hello, and welcome to Nitty Gritty Nursing with Nurse M. Today, I'm going to break down in this podcast uh, episode bowel obstructions, and I'm going to talk about the different types of bowel obstructions that people can get and some of the nursing management that we would do to take care of these people. It only takes one bowel obstruction where someone is vomiting fecal matter essentially because their bowel has been obstructed and it's backed up for you to have a real memorable moment of what a bowel obstruction looks like and what you would do to take care of it if you are the nurse caring for this particular kind of patient. So what this boils down to is there are two types of bowel obstructions that people can get. We call it either a functional obstruction or a mechanical obstruction. Now, a functional bowel obstruction results from the absence of peristalsis from either ischemia or some sort of neuromuscular dysfunction. Your classic functional obstruction is the paralytic ileus, where no rhyme, no reason, there's not a mechanical obstruction preventing fecal movement from going, but the peristalsis of the intestines has just kind of stopped for whatever reason. And it can be caused by quite a few things, by electrolyte imbalances, gastroenteritis, where the inflammation or infection of the stomach or intestines causes causes it to kind of slow way down or stop. Appendicitis can result from this. Pancreatitis can cause paralytic ileus. Surgical complications, anesthesia, a lot of things can be the end result of paralytic ileus, which can lead to a bowel obstruction. And we see it when the bowel sounds are decreased or absent. The other reason why people get bowel obstructions are from a mechanical, physical obstruction of some sort, and this results from an occlusion of either the small or large bowel lumen, which physically prevents stool from being able to travel down that pathway to its normal exit. Now, when people get a mechanical obstruction, the bowel sounds may be hyperactive above the obstruction because the bowel is literally trying to push the crap through and it might be absent below the obstruction so if ultimately like with any semblance of a bowel obstruction whether it's functional or mechanical if it is not addressed and fixed it will ultimately lead to bowel ischemia which can then become perforated and then sepsis and then death so bowel obstructions are a big reason um or a big thing in nursing that we need to be aware of and understand how to take care of it Again, if you have a functional bowel obstruction, like a paralytic ileus, um, that can be from a post-operative state. It can be from electrolyte disturbances or from some sort of peritonitis, appendicitis, pancreatitis, any of the itises that are occurring in the belly can cause a paralytic ileus to develop. The other functional bowel obstruction that can be the end result is like bowel ischemia. So if someone comes in and they are admitted for a completely different reason and develop sepsis and end up with septic shock, or they came in and they were really hypovolemic and they developed some sort of hypovolemic shock, and the bowels were not adequately perfused. We can have bowel, portions of bowel that actually die, die off. And when that bowel is dead, it's no longer going to send the impulse of peristalsis through, leading to a bowel obstruction that can occur. Now, the mechanical obstructions are probably in in my personal and professional experience the most common ones that I've been privy to. There are four big ones that I'm going to talk about. Herniations, adhesions, volvulus, and interceptions. Now a mechanical obstruction, about 80% of these are found in the small bowel. And the big reasons why people get these are for any number of reasons. It can be from um, an an abdominal adhesion. So if someone has had a lot of bowel surgeries, they can develop these adhesions which attach small intestine to each other and can cause like essentially, um, you know, hairpin loops or hairpin turns in the bowel that prevent fecal material from getting through there properly and can result in a bowel obstruction. 20% of obstructions occur in the large bowel and it's usually caused by some sort of diverticular disease, volvulus or some sort of colorectal adenocarcinoma, which is like uh, some sort of colorectal cancer that is like physically growing and impedes the flow of fecal matter in the large bowel out or even fecal impaction. So let's talk about a volvulus So a volvulus is basically when a portion of the bowel twists upon itself. And sort of the best way to describe it is it's kind of like a twisty tie. If you take a twisty tie off of a bag of bread and you were to twist it, that's kind of what happens with a volvulus, in my opinion, based on the pictures I'm staring at. And if it goes left untreated, it can cause all sorts of problems. People who develop some sort of volvulus where the bowel has basically... um, twisted on itself to some degree I would encourage you to pull up a picture or you know people who have some sort of inflammatory bowel disease are at risk for the development of a volvulus or like those with ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease run a higher risk of experiencing some sort of colonic colonic obstruction um When people get these and that twisting occurs, it prevents fecal matter from getting through. So signs and symptoms of someone who has a volvulus bowel obstruction, right? The most common thing is going to be constipation, or so they presume, because the fecal material has been backed up. So they feel like they can't have a normal bowel movement. They're going to have abdominal pain. They will have abdominal cramps. Again, that makes sense because the bowel are going to try to push the fecal material through. And it cannot. There will be swelling of the abdomen from the inflammatory process. They will have nausea and vomiting. And the way that we diagnose a volvulus specifically is going to be done with like a traditional x-ray and imaging where they will look for this telltale sign called the coffee bean shape or the bent inner tube. And that's the shape in the bowel that they can see on the x-ray itself. They can also do a barium enema that would have to be, I mean, that's kind of a hard one, especially if this is in the small intestines um, or some sort of CT scan and ultrasound could be considered if they needed to. The treatment for someone who has a volvulus will typically involve an attempt to unblock this obstruction and untwist the intestine. And this can be accomplished without surgery, um, and that is always the preferred and ideal way. However, if the obstruction remains and the bowel is still twisted or rotated, then it would require surgical treatment. And for most surgical treatments for individuals who get a volvulus, it's usually a laparotomy that is done, and it involves an incision that is made in the abdomen, and then um, basically they go in and they untwist the portion of bowel. Um, Part of the problem is that with a volvulus, not only is the fecal material not getting through, but it is also cutting off normal blood flow to different portions of the bowel, which is a problem because then it can become necrotic. So that's the first one, volvulus. The second mechanical obstruction is called an intersusception. And I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but that is how I pronounce it. And basically, an intersusception occurs when one part of the intestine slides into another part, it like telescopes into it. And this creates a blockage or obstruction that stops the food from being digested and passed through that lumen because the bowel has literally telescoped on itself. Um, we don't know why or what causes interceptions. We know that it is um, more often in children. And there has been some research that has said that there's a link with, with other conditions, specifically like viral infections, abdominal or intestinal tumors, appendicitis, again, that pops back up, Crohn's disease, things like that. The key with interception is that this is a medical emergency. It is a medical emergency. Um, It's really rare in newborn babies, um, but it is the most common cause of an intestinal blockage in children between the ages of three months and three years of age. It can also occur in older adults, children, and adults, but but the only people I've ever seen it in have been in children. And if we don't treat it, it can lead to infection and death. Again, signs and symptoms, if the bowel is obstructed, Right? They're going to have vomiting. They are going to have potentially like sweating, dehydration, a really swollen belly. I think the unique thing about interception specifically is that they will also have this red jelly like stool, the bloody stool, um, based on how the intestine has telescoped in on itself. Now, the treatment for this specifically is. We'll try a water-soluble contrast or air enema. Uh, this is both diagnostic and treatment-based because if the enema works, right, and it actually r- undoes the telescoping that has occurred of the intestine, um, it can actually fix the the interception about ninety percent of the time in children, and no further treatment is needed. Now, if we do the water-soluble contrast or air enema, right, and it doesn't work, we can still use the um, enema itself. As- as a diagnostic and take a picture to see where it is and where what the pro- root of the big problem is. Now, um, if the intestine is torn or perforated, we cannot use the water-soluble contrast or air enema as neither a diagnostic procedure or a treatment option. And interception can occur about 20, reoccur up to 20% of the time. And so the treatment will have to be repeated. Now, if we do this, um, if we cannot do, if we cannot do the water-soluble contrast or air enema and we have to do a surgical procedure, we do that if the intestine is torn um, and if the enema is unsuccessful in correcting the problem or if a lead point is the cause of surgery is necessary. And the surgeon will actually free the portion of the intestine that is trapped, clear the obstruction if necessary, and then remove any of the intestinal tissue that has died. And surgery is the main treatment for adults and for people who are acutely ill who have an intussusception. Now the third one is adhesions, and abdominal adhesions are bands of scar tissue that form between abdominal organs, mainly in the small intestine, and adhesions can occur after an abdominal surgery and can cause your tissues to stick together when normally they would just be moving around freely. Normally, this isn't necessarily a problem. However, if it creates a hairpin turn, for example, in a small intestine and it really bends it and it prevents the fecal matter from being able to move freely through, then that can cause a big Um, obstruction that we need to deal with. Um, Again, signs and symptoms are going to be very similar to the other ones. We're going to have nausea, vomiting. We might have some sort of constipation because nothing's getting through. Again, abdominal pain, bloating, things like that. Most adhesions that people get actually cause no symptoms at all. Sometimes though, the abdominal adhesions can cause the intestines to twist, similar to how like a garden hose essentially becomes kinked. And this, condi- this condition can occur shortly after or even years after surgery and can lead to complete or partial intestinal obstructions. So with the obstruction, food, liquid, air, and waste just cannot pass through. So big problem. And we have to go in and oftentimes surgically cut through to release the adhesion to remove the bowel obstruction, which is problematic in and of itself, because the more abdominal surgeries you have, the more likely you are to develop additional adhesions. Now, the last type of mechanical bowel obstruction I'm going to talk about here are hernias, and it's like a strangulated hernia of some sort. And that's where part of the intestine protrudes through a weak spot in the abdominal muscles. And this results oftentimes in a bulge on the exterior part of the body, just underneath the skin, that can be quite painful, especially when people cough or bend or lift any big heavy object. Now, hernias in and of themselves do not cause the pain necessarily. And Most hernias, like an inguinal or an umbilical hernia, they're not necessarily dangerous, especially if when you push on it, it just pop, Pops right back into the abdominal wall, back through that muscle. And then you know they cough again and the intestine pops back out. As long as it's soft and supple and you're able to push that intestine back into the cavity, um, it's not necessarily dangerous. What's dangerous is when the intestine gets popped through right the muscle wall and it's on the outside and we can feel it. And when we push on it, it's really hard and we can't get it back in. This is what we classify as a strangulated hernia. Now, symptoms of this are going to include like a bulge in the area, you know, an inguinal hernia will be a bulge on either side of like the pubic bone um, that you cannot push back in, Uh, burning or aching at that bulge, pain or discomfort, um, a heavy sensation, things like that signs of trouble when people have a hernia right is if you cannot push the hernia back in the contents of that are likely trapped or incarcerated and we call it we can become strangulated which means that the intestinal material that is through the muscle wall that is on the outside oftentimes will then start to become inflamed and swollen because it's been irritated When that happens, it becomes strangulated and cuts off the blood flow to that tissue that's trapped there. And it can become life-threatening if it's not treated because it's essentially necrotic bowel that is sitting there building up loads of bacteria and toxins that can cause sepsis and even perforation. The example I give with this is this is why, like, as nurses, your assessment skills are critical. Uh, You know, I was a young, fresh nurse out of nursing school taking care of a patient in a rural community, and we knew that he was just really, really sick. He had a fever. He was tachycardic. He was altered. But we didn't know where his infection source was, and I had taken over care, and I was getting him changed into a gown to go up to the floor because we were just going to admit him do IV antibiotics because he had an infection somewhere. We didn't know what it was. And as I was changing this confused individual, I found a strangulated hernia, inguinal hernia, and it was red and angry, hard to the touch. I couldn't push it back in. And I notified the provider and change a plan. He actually went straight to the OR to have that removed and um, fixed. So signs and symptoms of these strangulated hernias are going to be, again, nausea, vomiting, even both, fevers, pain in that intestine, and then the hernia bulge itself can turn red or purple or a dark color, and these people cannot pass stool, they can't pass gas, nothing like that. So these are all signs of bowel obstructions. The four hallmark clinical manifestations of an obstruction, whether or not it is a functional obstruction or a mechanical obstruction, are going to be abdominal pain, nausea and vomiting, distension, and then some sort of constipation. Now, the order and degree of these symptoms will vary based on the cause, whether it's a volvulus or a hernia or an adhesion or you know a paralytic ileus. So, it's going to vary based on what is causing it, the location in the bowel where it is occurring, and the type of instruction that it is. Because obstructions in and of themselves, complications will lead to either A, a bowel necrosis where the bowel has essentially died because of impaired vascular circulation, or perforation due to overdistension of the bowel lumen um, that is a sequel to bowel necrosis. And when that perforates, again, we are outspilling, right, fecal material into a clean, pristine peritoneum, and it causes peritonitis, which can lead to sepsis, sepsic shock, and then death. So we really want to be cognizant of it. Now, all this to say, what's the point? We've talked about the different types of obstructions that can occur in patients. Now you, as a nurse, like, how are we going to manage these patients? Well, First and foremost, like, again, it really starts with a good physical exam, a good abdominal exam. And again, I reflect back to that patient I was caring for. We didn't know where the source of infection was, and I found the strangulated hernia just based on my assessment and skill of taking the patient out of their clothes because he was unable to communicate that with me because he was altered. And, you know, we might also do CT scans or some sort of x-ray to try to identify where the issue is. The other big thing that we do for bowel obstruction management is we will do a decompression of the intestines by putting in an NG tube. If Material that is sitting in the stomach or that has backed up cannot get through because of a bowel obstruction, it is only going to cause these people to become incredibly nauseous and start to vomit everything. The food is still going to break down. And that's why I said, you know, it only takes one experience where you have a patient who has a bowel obstruction who is profusely vomiting what appears to be fecal material out of their mouth because the food cannot get through anywhere and it will back up and try to be removed. Orally. So we put a nasogastric tube into these individuals to decompress not only the stomach but the intestines. Now here's the key. When we do that, we are now altering this patient's ability to With electrolytes and fluid because we are sucking out the gastric contents. And it is not uncommon for someone with a bowel obstruction who's been going at it for a few days before they finally come in to get some help that when you put that NG tube in and you hit the suction, it is A, very gratifying. B, these patients feel incredibly better once you can decompress their stomach, but I have emptied like as much as two liters of partially digested contents out of these individual stomachs because it cannot go anywhere. So they have this immediate relief when we decompress the stomach, that nausea, that vomiting goes away. But I will tell you right now, (laughs) firsthand... Putting in an NG tube on some people, especially if they're confused, is very difficult and challenging. And the process of inserting an NG tube in and of itself is not the most pleasant ordeal to have to go through. But should someone have an NG tube in place, one of the nursing aspects that we really need to be cognizant of is maintaining fluid and electrolytes because we are sucking out all of their gastric contents in an effort to decompress the stomach and give the bowels some rest. And then what we might also do is give antibiotics from a prophylactic standpoint, if we suspect peritonitis from the leaking of bacteria into the system. So should your patient have an NG tube, we oftentimes will check it regularly for placement and patency, typically outputs that are greater than a thousand milliliters, right? So one liter, if you put your NG tube in in the ER and you get an immediate output of one and a half liters, I'm not terribly worried about it at that point because I'm going to continue to monitor it. And I have just made this person's life so much better in terms of nausea and vomiting. But now as we go forward, if I have initially removed the co- the like large volume and now I'm monitoring it, really one of the things with NG tubes is any outputs with bowel obstructions that are greater than 1,000 milliliters in eight hours right? We need to really closely monitor these patients for electrolyte imbalances because it can happen, right? If nothing is getting through, we are going to pull out a ton of fluid. But with that fluid also comes solutes. So these patients are at incredible risk for hyponatremia and hypokalemia, low sodium, low potassium. So accurate intake and output for fluid management is key because these individuals are you know, at risk for the development of dehydration. So we need to put in and monitor those lab values. They need an IV, they need IV hydration and maintenance fluids running continually because they're not going to be eating or drinking anything. And then oftentimes, because obstructions cause so much pain in the abdominal region, we also need to medicate them, which is a double-edged sword, right? Because they have terrible pain and we want to medicate them. But what do the primary narcotic-based medications do to the bowels in the hospital. It generates more constipation. So there's this fine threshold that we have to walk between keeping this person comfortable, managing their obstruction, and trying to get it resolved so that hopefully we can just avoid surgery. Sometimes we can't and they have to go to surgery. But again, that's the end goal. So this was the nitty-gritty basics of what I know about the two different primary types of bowel obstruction being functional and mechanical. I hope that none of you really have to experience a patient with a bowel obstruction because A, it's quite uncomfortable for them and B, it can be quite challenging for you to be able to manage them but now that you understand what causes bowel obstructions and what we need to be cognizant of in terms of fluid and electrolytes that's the big thing and then making sure like when they do pass their first bowel movement like what does it look like and then the key elements of like interceptions red jelly-like stool that's like classic and that's a favorite oftentimes in many schools and a favorite test question about red jelly-like stools coming from an interception using that air enema So that's all I've got on bowel obstructions. I hope this was helpful and educational. If you like what you hear, make sure to like it in the podcast platform that you're listening to it in. Uh, Feel free to reach out to me via email Uh, that's listed in the podcast description if you have a topic you'd like me to cover. And otherwise, go forth and keep on learning.